ecclesiastical means of or related to the church, a synonym for religious or churchy. So what I want to share this morning is an update on the state of the church. I was hired in the summer of 2018 following a period of controversy and contention following the departures of three ministers and some longtime lay stalwarts. I was charged with carrying out the normal responsibilities of congregational ministry, including worship, spiritual and pastoral leadership, and to assist you in addressing five specific concerns. One, inspiring a healthy culture, a healthier culture at Eshore. Two, stabilize the church's governance structure, both the policy-based governance, uh, solidify its, its authority here, and the staff leadership team model of executive uh, agency. Three, increase the church's financial health. health. Four, establish a leadership development program with recognized visibility and effectiveness. And five, bringing about growth in numbers, spirit, and good multi-generational programming. So first, inspiring a better culture at ESUC. How's that been going? Pretty well, I think. I believe that. And here's why I do. When I arrived, I immediately met dozens of people who wanted to set me straight on all of the recent controversies, which side was right and which was wrong and why. I must tell you the truth. When I was trained years ago as a teacher therapist with um, and trained in family therapy to work with these families and these mostly these kids in you know eight nine ten um, Ann Hicks my supervisor regularly reminded me to pay much less attention to the content of what these little clients were screaming about and more to their affect. How do they, what, 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 what was their mood? Where were they at? How, how strung out were they? What did they do when they were strung out? How did they behave? And, and it was the affect that was the key to opening them up and relaxing them and getting them more trusting. Ever since then, I have always tried to do this. And there was plenty of affect here to go around on every side of every issue. It was far from the worst I've seen, I must tell you. But the willingness of members, some, to focus on the controversial issues instead of working on healing their relationships, though it was understandable, these things happen. We get ticked off at individuals, but it's counterproductive. The way to heal these rifts is to focus on the relationships and try to heal them again and get people talking to each other and being in the same room comfortably. And once it starts to escalate, that is controversy, it just winds up. Using the then recently established Right Relations Committee to de-escalate 
was encouraged by the board wisely, as it turned out, as their repeated careful nonviolent strategy for unpacking highly charged emotional material um, opened things up. And they would do these circles and people would just share their personal experience and not judge others. Over the course of the next two years, these circles, largely facilitated by Pam Orbach, became far more, uh, we all in the using these circles and graduating from them too and becoming our own facilitators in various circles, we became far more comfortable studying and talking about the cultural and racial issues dividing much of America, indeed the whole world, and in certain cases, ourselves and our own community and our other churches across the UUA. But mostly we learned to talk about the issues that were dividing us from one another and about how we can be more understanding and welcoming going forward. And we are learning and we are better as time goes on, less flummoxed and bent out of shape when triggered hearing words like white supremacy culture or Antifa activist. Now, I'm a process relational thinker. They usually talk about process theology, but my professor at seminary, Bernie Loomer, always called it process relational because relationships were the key. It's the relationships here that were strained and getting back in sync with one another and in harmony with your vision and mission requires healing the relationships, then the controversies kind of evaporate. Oh, there's still plenty of disagreements, but they are only that, disagreements, not quarrels. I am fairly sure things were, I was fairly sure that things were gonna settle down and even out because I also quickly discovered upon my arrival here how many wonderful, terrific people there were in this congregation. Lots of competence, lots of intelligence, even more important, lots of compassion, creative instincts, and generosity aplenty. It's a hard-to-beat combination when not crippled by lingering grudges and old wounds. The second charge given me was to stabilize the church's governance structure, both its policy governance organizational structure and through formalizing staff collaboration by means of firming up the staff leadership team that had been established. This effort was aided by a second board committee, the Policy and Governance Committee led by Ann Fletcher most of the time. The committee has worked continuously throughout my tenure here going through our church bylaws, ironing out holdover anomalies, and never abating their work bringing the church organizational structure into compliance with our mission and our vision. Stabilizing the SLT, the staff leadership team, has been harder. It's, it has gone from three members to four and the leadership styles of each of us are still in the process of working out a, a good plan, a good um, 
ensemble consciousness. But we are getting better, mostly by revisiting our mutually agreed to staff leadership team covenant and doing our best to follow, to be reminded of, and then to follow its guidance. Soon, the SLT will again face a rearrangement of personnel and other changes. Nevertheless, I feel good about my work helping integrate these general governance structures, rather, into the, your legal documents and general self-understanding of who you are and how you do things together. As your next minister begins working their way into everyday life here, they will be helped by all of this. All of it. Increasing the church's financial health was also among my charges here. It was suggested that adherence to long-term strategic planning be utilized in combination with leveraged use of the endowment fund, mortgage, and facilities reserve fund, which could supplement ESUC's pledging capacity. Additionally, I was encouraged to assist the congregation in deciding what to do with the proceeds from the sale of Holly House, and only voted upon, which had only been voted upon weeks before my arrival. This has been kind of a never-ending saga, this whole Holly House. We have steadily increased our pledging strength throughout the years of my ministry, every year. But the long-term strategic plan has been revisited only recently. And then there's Holly House. Having spent four years on the task force, I must tell you, in all honesty, the church members who have enlisted in this task are wonderful heroes to me. They should be to you, and they will always be to me. They will become heroes to all of you, too, soon, I think. Not tomorrow, but soon enough. Soon enough. Soon enough. Financial help is a step-by-step process, and there are many steps before this congregation. The financial stewardship and budget committees are concerned that our church staff has grown too large. Hard to say. I can attest to their dedication and commitment to this church and the fulfillment of your mission. They are also basically very good people who want with all their hearts for this place to thrive and be the extraordinary center for art, growth, liberation, and the celebration of life that it has been and can be again. May it be so, my friends. May this happen. I was unsuccessful in establishing a leadership and volunteer development program. Martin Cox and I were beginning to get organized around this effort when the novel coronavirus struck 25 months ago. I haven't mentioned the pandemic because I do not want people to think I'm offering excuses, and there is no excuse necessary. We were hit by an extraordinary series of events that changed everything in all of our lives. And let me add, in the lives of all of our compatriot Unitarian Universalists across the land, across the whole world, we as a congregation responded in manifold, creative, wonderful ways. From having done, never done it, within a week our services went completely virtual. It was bumpy at first, but we never missed a beat. 
And what we presented got better every Sunday. We learned to make videos, to sing hymns, to craft joys and sorrows mandala meditations, to include the children and youth in our services in new and creative ways, all while continuing outreach through a variety of ministry teams active across the greater east side. It was exciting, but it was also exhausting and as the pandemic went on, emotionally draining for many of us, certainly including me. I became depressed. I spoke with Keith Cron, the director of transitions at our denominational headquarters, and I was relieved to learn that I was far from alone in my depression. Nor should I have been surprised. The root of the word religion is the Latin religio, meaning literally to relink, regather together again, to come together again. And then suddenly, as ministers, we were unable to gather together anyone at all. Well, it was incredibly challenging and extremely hard for me to deal with. COVID stopped us from gathering. I lost also my most effective instrument in the past for reestablishing cohesion and warmer feelings with one another, adjusting seating arrangements so that we all face one another. We did that my second year here. We sat in a circle for about eight, six services in a row, and my intention had been to do it every spring until people remembered that we were one whole family, like sitting around a dinner table. Your president, Mike Radow, and especially your vice president, Signe Lelish, were both very helpful in supporting me through this rough time that I was going through and got back on my feet, thanks in part, as I say, to their good support. Much of parish ministry can be a tough time. And if you are not attentive and careful, it can hammer a man or a woman. You realize that the average career, maybe you don't, the average career in the parish, in the UU parish, the average career is about eight and a half years. So people go to seminary, they get ordained, and they go out into the field, and, um, well, there are a lot of short timers in this line of work. An ancient but often hobbled craft, parish ministry is neither particularly glamorous nor lucrative, and it's not at all stable um, as a profession where you get tenure or anything like it. You go to work when they're, when, at the time of days when those whom you are serving are not working. It's like my first father-in-law was a musician. He said, oh, I get it. Where you, When I go to work, everybody's goofing off. And when you go to work, everybody's not working. I said, yes. <laughs> People can be imperious sometimes, and you have to learn how to take it in stride. It rarely helps to sell, tell a member off even when they deserve it. Pay attention to the affect, as my old boss, Ann Hicks, would always remind me. What is the unspoken inner need 
After 40 years practicing this craft, I can say with confidence that every political problem I've run into somehow came from or was generated by a pastoral lapse or insensitivity on my part. And somebody gets offended or hurt, and I don't pick it up right away, or I poo-poo it, or I just don't even see it. I try to be sensitive, to pay attention to impact, to act with care. But I confess that some days I am better than others and not always at my best. And for this, I apologize. In little over two months, I will be out of here. It is always like that when you are an interim or developmental minister. Here today, gone tomorrow. Who was that masked man? <laughs> really? Here's my mask. <laughs> we are transitional ministers. We are not asked to make a heavy imprint on the institution, but to align it with our movement's best instincts and impulses and to set it up for success in the days and months and years up ahead. Pour out the old wine so that new wine can be put into new wineskins. I enjoy the role, and I take pride in it. There are some protocols that should be mentioned, the main one being that upon departure, we interims and developmental ministers are asked to refrain from contact with members for a couple of years. Why, you ask? To give my successor a chance to fully engage with all of you wonderful people. And to let me disengage from Bellevue and fully connect into a new congregation someplace else. For ministers, too, often this engenders a lot of repressed and unexpressed grief. But it doesn't have to. Disengagement demands of the minister acknowledging her his own grief, which I am acknowledging and sharing with you all right now. Moreover, Carol and I will leave you and come midsummer. We will stay away. But that doesn't mean I haven't loved you because I have loved you deeply and desperately. Rest assured, I have loved you you and this church. My favorite teacher in seminary, Bernard Loomer, admonished me as I left to accept my first call. Congregants want to love their minister and be loved by that person back. I've done my best to love you back into congregational health. Now it's up to you to do your best to love your new minister in the same generous way. So may it be. And amen.